pray together. Holy Spirit, that is what we ask right now. We ask that you take the words of scripture and that you would use them to speak directly to us in such a way that we are changed and that we're made to look more like you, Jesus. So take the truth of the word of Holy Scripture and Spirit, use it to shape us and mold us and and do work in our hearts. Um, We pray these things for Jesus' sake and for his glory. Amen. Well, good morning, Fellowship Greenville. My name is Jim, and I am one of the pastors here. Thank you so much for being here to worship Jesus with us today. Hello there across the way, Auditorium One. You guys look stellar per usual, and howdy out there uh, if you're joining us online. If you are here and you are visiting with us, we're extra special, happy, glad to have you. If you have any questions about life here at Fellowship, we have a team out at our Welcome Center in the Commons over near Auditorium One that would love to help you in any way they can. Uh, if, if you call this place home and you are a member or a regular, you can go bother our friends out at Next Steps, also near Auditorium One, uh, if you're looking to get more involved. They have all the details for the marriage conference that we just played a video for uh, a bit ago. And if you're looking to get into a community group or if you're looking for opportunities uh, for service, whatever the case, go bother them over at Next Steps. <clears throat> also, if you are new here and you are visiting with us, just an FYI, on Sunday mornings, we are usually working our way through and preaching and teaching through an entire book of the Bible, trying to understand it on its own terms. We want to read the Bible the way that God gave us the Bible. And this approach has us currently wading through the New Testament book of Ephesians. Ephesians is a letter from Paul. He was like a missionary, ambassador, emissary kind of guy. Paul to the church in Ephesus in the first century. And Paul is trying to encourage his friends to be faithful to Jesus amidst moral and cultural and racial and political and theological tensions, if you could imagine a time like that. And so our little tagline for Ephesians is God's plan for God's church revealed. We want to know, desperately want to know what it means to be God's people in the world and for the world. Like like if Jesus died for us and he has taken sin and death and judgment into himself for us, and if he has been raised and he is victorious over the powers and he's the true Lord and the true king of the whole world, then now we need to know what is God's revealed plan for those of us who are trying to follow him. So as as Jesus' people, as the church, we need to be asking, like, what should it look like to trust him and continue his own life and ministry in the world? And these are the kinds of questions that we are asking because these are the kinds of questions that Ephesians addresses. It's what Paul wanted his friends to know way back then, and it's what we are after today to learn the lifelong and communal art of swearing allegiance to Jesus above everything and through everything, living in God's revealed purposes and not our preferences. And today we get to continue to think about those things in Ephesians chapter four. So if you wanna go ahead and get there in your Bibles, that would be great. (laughs) Ephesians chapter four, and I promise we will get there in a few minutes. 
Now, as you are finding your way there, uh, just a little peek into my personal nerdiness for you. I know you're all so curious. Um, a lot of people have hobbies. You know, you do your gardening or you work on cars or music or whatever your hobby is. Uh, one of mine, and this is peeking into my nerdiness, is I have an insane infatuation uh, with church history. Um, this is not a, a, a line item in the shadows of my job description. This was not central to my master's thesis in any way. But the older I get, the more I'm fascinated by it. Just think, it's so intriguing to consider the different hills that people were willing to die on. And think about all the things that people have fought about for 2,000 years. And it's so humbling and beautiful to read about the martyrdoms and different testimonies of different saints. And also to note the different traditions where people didn't get along. Like it's terribly, it's all terribly riveting to me. <clears throat> One of my favorite, just quick snapshots of this is uh, St. Nicholas of uh, of Yuletide fame, that's the St. Nicholas to which we're referring. Um, really, really compassionate guy, and the stories are true that he anonymously gave money and stuff away to people who were in need. So even though he's this really sweethearted, kind guy, there was this big pastor's meeting in the fourth century, and I've probably told this story before, but there was another pastor guy at that meeting who didn't believe that Jesus was God. And St. Nicholas just reared back and punched the dude right in the face, and punched the dude right in the face. I, I love that story because Merry Christmas, you filthy animal, sincerely, St. Nicholas. Like, it's a, it's, a funny, it's a funny thing in my mind to go, okay, he was not only willing to die on this hill, but notice how he, he reacted to it. Or then you can skip forward a few hundred years to St. Francis. <clears throat> um, Francis, he got really, really fed up. He, when he looked at the church and the leadership of the church, all he saw was power-hungry and money-hungry politics within the church. And legend has it, that St. Francis got so frustrated with all this that he walked into the town square of the little city where he lived, <clears throat> bustling with trade and commerce. He walked into the town square completely naked and said, all I need and all I have is Christ. And we're like, all right, dude, I, like, I get your point, but maybe a light tunic might help to make it. Like just something, just something to help us out. We get what you're trying to say. And then you can fast forward a few hundred more years to the Reformation and the Reformation Man, in the Reformation around 1500, it got really, really intense. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright has half-jokingly said, if the reformers would have only started with Ephesians and not Galatians, the Reformation would not have been so splintered and divisive, which is, I mean, he's half-joking, and it's a big overstatement, but he is, he is right on a couple points, aside from his last name. He, he's, he's right that Ephesians is a stark invitation to unity. That's what we're going to talk about today. But he's also right that the Reformation at certain points was unnecessarily divisive. Like, I don't know if you know this, people got thrown in jail because they disagreed about the Lord's Supper and what was actually happening when you took communion together. <clears throat> also, some people were like, man, this is so crazy. And they became crazy pacifists and they went and hid in the hills and just like crossed their fingers for Jesus to come back. Other people were like, the reformers, you're okay, but what we need is revolt, violent revolt against the Roman Catholic Church. And they just went too intense and they just all picked up swords to like charge Rome. <clears throat> also, here's one of my favorite ones. Uh, practically, Martin Luther loved big, loud singing and lots of instruments, and he wrote a bunch of new songs. Uh, his, his Swiss counterpart, John Calvin, uh, is a tightwad, and he was like, no to that. And he said, we can only sing the songs that God's already approved, just the book of Psalms, that's all we can sing, and no more instruments, we're just using our voices, and don't write any new songs, which is just a bunch of no fun, even though the Psalms literally say, write some new songs. So John Calvin failed huge right there. Now, then you have this other story where Luther and Calvin and the Roman Catholic Church, they all still agreed on infant baptism. So when people after the Reformation started reading the New Testament afresh, 
And they started to see that baptism in the New Testament was connected to faith, and it was likely by immersion. People like the early Mennonites and the early Baptists started saying, hey, I want to get baptized like that, like, like in the book of Acts. And because church and state were still kind of married, in a few places, this is what the authorities said. Hey, if you want to get baptized like that, that's fine. Go ahead. But if you find out, if we find out about that, you'll get the death penalty. The death penalty. Okay, baptism. That's what, that's what we're talking about. Now, guess how sometimes the death penalty was carried out against these early Mennonites and Baptists. You ready for this? <laughs> this is just a bag of stupid. Death by drowning. <clears throat> you, want, you want to get baptized, do you? Double down. Like, that's what that is. That's the war. That is just top-tier sinister. That is not the sweet spot of they will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. Right? That's terrible. <clears throat> then several generations later, you get to John Wesley and George Whitfield, and they intensely disagreed. You can read the letters that they wrote back and forth to each other. They intensely disagreed about predestination and free will stuff, about kind of how people became Christians. And John Wesley leaned more towards the free will side of the argument, and Whitfield leaned more towards the Calvinistic view of predestination. But both of these individuals were such passionate evangelists and so badly wanted to see people come to know Jesus that they were often just able to set aside their differences and encourage each other in the preaching of the gospel, which is just a beautiful snapshot. And then a couple generations and a couple hundred years later, that lands us on the doorstep of today. And if I look across the church landscape of today, there's still dozens of points of division. The gifts of the Holy Spirit or speaking in tongues or end times or how the church and the state should relate or women in ministry or Christianity and bioethics or Christianity and the LGBTQIA plus community or even Calvinism is still a point of contention in places. And there's scores of little discussions in and around and through all of these. And so, When I read church history and I do my fun excavating of the past and I start to think about where we've come from and where we are, there are two things that that strike me when when I think about all that. Two things that come to mind. First of all, I'm a glass half full kind of guy. I'm an optimist. I'm a positive guy. So here it is. This is the first thing. The church of Jesus Christ is not going anywhere. Nowhere, if it can survive the persecution and the division and the abuse and the marginalization of the past 2,000 years, it's not going to fade. Or in the words of our Lord himself, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And the implication of this is that countries and empires will come and go and fade and dissolve. America is a footnote in the course of human history. But the kingdom of God will not, the church is not going anywhere. That's the first thing I think when I look at all this stuff. And here's the second thing I think. Second thing that comes to mind as I scour church history and analyze where we are today. If the church of Jesus Christ is not going anywhere and God has been faithful through our rocky past, How much more faithfully could we see him move if we were actually unified as one? What could happen? What if we did the Wesley and Whitfield thing and we set aside our differences and then, you know what happened to them? They saw tens of thousands of people come to faith in Jesus. So how do we get that seasoning on our lives? Like, what do we do? Somehow we... We are so inundated with making sure people know our personal opinions that we can't even celebrate God clearly working in somebody else unless that other person, you ready, ends up just like you. We can't do that. It's embarrassing. And that is a desire for for flat homogeneity and uniformity and not 
unity. It's just arrogance and it's pride. So what do we need to do? Like what constitutes true unity? What are the things that it's, it's supposed to accent and what are the things it's supposed to emphasize? And when we're doing the, trying to do the unity thing, are there things that we're supposed to steer clear of, steer away from to maintain unity? And how do we know what those things are? And furthermore, this is about the, the oneness and the harmony of God's people. Like this is not about, about holding hands with people who can't stand Jesus and, and singing we are the world. That's not, what I, that's not what I'm talking about. That's a different discussion. Sharing Jesus' love with, with those who don't know him is a different discussion. But my present point is twofold. One, why would they ever wanna be a part of a family that does that, that hates each other? And secondly, how much more of God's grace and beauty and truthfulness and faithfulness could we behold if we actually lived in harmony and unity with one another? Questions like this are screamed from the corridors of holy history. And more importantly than what church history has to say, and more importantly than what we each think about unity based on our personal preference or upbringing or our latest soapbox, the most vital question is what does God's word have to say? What does Holy Scripture have to say to us about our oneness and our togetherness? Enter Ephesians chapter four, verses one through 16. <clears throat> Ephesians four, one through 16 is our passage today. Also, if we glued all of these questions together this morning, they're gonna sound like this. What should we do to protect against false unity and preserve the true unity that we have in Jesus? If the church of Jesus Christ isn't going anywhere, and if our unity will somehow further put his love and grace and glory on display, what should we do to protect against false unity and preserve the true unity that we have in him, in Jesus, and that's the question that Ephesians 4 will help us answer. Now this morning, in gratitude for God speaking to us through his word, I'll read our passage and I'll say the word of God for the people of God, and then comes your line with big, hearty gratitude. Thanks be to God. Also, Auditorium 1, I have spies over there. Make it count, make it a good one. Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. Here we go, Ephesians 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fulfill, that he might fill all things. And he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some shepherds, and some teachers, all to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children <coughs> tossed to and fro by the waves 
and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Now, there's so much here that you get a special two-part message. Part one is today. We're gonna come back and do this exact passage next week. And one of the reasons this passage is so dense is that chapter four is the beginning of the biggest turn in the letter of the Ephesians. So chapters one through three are theological and prayerful truths about our union with Jesus and our union with each other. And then chapters four through six are about, hey, here's what you should do because all that's true. Paul does this in his letters. In fact, the, the first three words in Greek in Ephesians 4.1 are the exact same words in Romans 12.1. So Romans 1 through 11 is a section and then 12 to 16. So he's making the big turn here in Ephesians. This is what Paul does. He'll start with theological thoughtfulness rooted in the gospel, and then he'll turn to practical gospel implications. <clears throat> in fact, this is just a fun fact for you here. In Ephesians 1 through 3, there's only one imperative verb. That's a verb that calls you to do something like, hey, do this. There's only one. <clears throat> but Ephesians 4 through 6 is the highest concentration of imperative verbs in the entire New Testament. Meaning, if the good news about Jesus is true and grace is real, then it should radically animate our lives. <clears throat> and here's the mind-blowing bit. The first thing that comes to Paul's mind when he thinks about responding to grace is actual, practical, functional unity. That's what we're talking about here. <clears throat> now, as we turn to look at our passage, here's how I've been helped in thinking about our passage like in a big way. <clears throat> Paul gives us uh, three lists. He gives us a list of five, a list of seven, and then another list of five. Look at verse two, first list of five. <clears throat> These are five ways to live in harmony, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearing love, and an eagerness to keep unity. <clears throat> then starting in verse four, look in verse four, count them with me, look up here. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one Father God over it all. So that's a list of seven. And seven, in a Hebrew worldview, the worldview of the Bible, is the number of divine completion or divine activity, kind of like the first, uh, the seven days of creation. And that means that God is uniquely active and up to something in our unity. And then finally, uh, near the end of the passage, Paul gives us another list of five, five different gifts that are intended to undergird our unity. So broadly, <clears throat> that's the all, uh, overall flow of thought of what's happening in our passage. So <clears throat> let's do this. Let's zoom in on some specifics. Look all the way back at verse three. <clears throat> verse three. This is the last one of the first list of five. This is the last one. Verse three. Be eager to maintain the unity of <clears throat> the spirit. Let's just start really simple. If you're told <clears throat> to maintain something, that means you already have it. All right? The verse doesn't say, hey, 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 I need you guys to get on it. I need you to be diligent so that one day, maybe one day, we can get some unity around here. That doesn't say that. We already have it. Because of Jesus' sin-forgiving, death-conquering, shame-defeating cross and resurrection, if you're trusting him for real life and salvation, unity is already yours. You already have it. You share a bond of peace with every Christian all over the entire world who is trusting Jesus and following him. That's an unbreakable bond of peace. 
like the verse says. But you know, you know what our hyper-individualistic and our hyper-tribalistic culture does? With church history in the rear view, it makes us think that the Christian life is like a buffet and we can put whatever we want on our plate. Like we're like, okay, I want some love because I'm supposed to, maybe a little joy, maybe just a little sprinkling of, of hope on there. I'll go with it, just a, like a, a seasoning or a side of truth because I don't wanna offend people, you know. But when you go to serve yourself immunity, you're like, no, that's too messy, I'm not, I'm not gonna do that. Why would I ever do that? It just, it'll just mess everything up. And that's not even close to what Paul is teaching in this passage. Paul's assumption here is that unity is part and parcel to the main course. And if you can't eat without it, then you can't live without it. And this, this leads us to the first part of the answer to our question about preserving true unity. We must realize that unity is not, not primarily a future goal in the distance to be achieved, but a present gift that we already have to be nurtured. And because we think the opposite of this uh, quite often, let's do it one more time. We must realize that unity is not primarily a future goal in the distance to be achieved, but it is a present gift that we already have that is intended to be nurtured. Look down at verse four. This is at the beginning of the, ver- of the list of seven. Paul says, look, there is one body, spirit, hope, Lord, faith, baptism, and God the Father. There is, not, hey, there will be if you get your stuff together. Come on, Ephesians. No, no, no. He says there is one of each of those things. And this means that unity is a gift of grace to be enjoyed and celebrated and nurtured right now. Right now, we're supposed to care for it and cultivate it and nurture it and nourish it and preserve it. We're supposed to do that right now. And doing this shines a spotlight on the mercy of Jesus that has brought us into his family. One of the things I love that I get to do around here is I get to do an hour on just the gospel at the beginning of our membership classes. Um, And one of the things that never ceases to amaze me in those spaces is all the different kinds of people that come in there because I I do, I kind of always have my church history brain on. um, And I always like to ask people um, based like their respective church tradition or like their denominational upbringing. And it usually goes something like this. All right, raise your hand if you're a Baptist and usually that's over half the people in there. It's like, okay, raise your hand if you're a Presbyterian and there's all, we always got a few Presby's sprinkled in there. There's another good joke. Come on guys, that's a good joke. A few Presby's sprinkled in there. Um, then I'm like, were you, raised, <coughs> were you raised Methodist or Nazarene or Wesleyan or Lutheran or Roman Catholic? And, and it's fun to see all the different kinds of people. And the joke works every time to go, hey, how many of you were raised Pentecostal? Both hands. Like that joke works every time and you're proving it, batting a thousand. Thank you very much. Um, and it, then I'll also sometimes uh, ask, hey, how many of you were not raised in church? And it's just interesting to see all the different kinds of people uh, that the Lord brings here. And this past time I said, hey, did I miss any specific denomination or church tradition? <clears throat> and two people raised their hands and, and I asked them and they said, uh, and the two were a Mormon and a Mennonite. And I was like, this is already a good joke. A Mormon and a Mennonite walk into a bar. <clears throat> like, and that's the whole joke, just that they went to a bar. That's the whole joke. Um, <clears throat> And it, it was really, really wonderful. But then in membership class, I love that I get to say this right after I ask everybody like their denominational upbringing and all that. I get to say, hey, so you just proved that in this room and at this church, there will absolutely be some distinction and discrepancy with little views here and there. But, but here, here's the thing. Those things are going to be in the margin because we are called <clears throat> to find our unity in Jesus alone. Paul tells the Corinthians, I don't wanna know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
And that's what Paul has been saying in Ephesians 1 through 3, that we are one in Christ. Jew and Gentile alike, doesn't matter your upbringing. If you're trusting Jesus and seeking to follow him and be like him and obey him, we share a oneness that will not be broken. So why would we not learn to care for it and see it blossom right now? Like, How stupid is it to be given a beautiful houseplant and never, ever water it? In fact, Paul says that you should be eager to maintain it. And guess what that requires? <clears throat> that requires the first four things in the list. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, just like Jesus. And guess what? Those are hard enough on their own, but we're called to those things in a culture that does this. The culture right now, you know what it says? They say, we're gonna find our unity around things that we disagree about, around things that we don't believe. And that's not the Christian call. Our call is to find unity around Jesus. And the unity we share in him is not a possibility in the future. It is a gift in the present that we are called to nurture and enjoy right now. So that's the first part of our answer. But there is more. Look down at verse 7. Verse 7. <clears throat> Grace was given to each one of us. So this is like, hey, you might have a different job when it comes to the unity. So there is distinction and difference. And there is unity. <clears throat> Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And this means that the same grace that unifies us also gifts us differently precisely for the sake of the unity. This is about spiritual gifts in some way. Now, Paul, then, if, if you want to look in verses 8, 9, and 10, <clears throat> this is a, like a side, really weird thing. He quotes from Psalm 68 and kind of pictures Jesus as acting out this snapshot of victory, <clears throat> God's victory in Psalm 68. The picture is that after Jesus descended into death and rose victoriously, he then ascended and blessed his people with the spoils of war. So, Here's the thinking in, in Ephesians. <clears throat> if Satan and the powers, I don't know if you remember the powers, if they held the nations captive and against one another, and now, watch this, now Jesus is bringing all nations into his family, Jesus is going to bless his people with different gifts so that they can keep and care for the unity he has given them, right? This is why we're gonna revisit some of this next week. But let's say it like this, let's say it like this. Christian unity is nurtured when we simultaneously understand how Jesus has uniquely gifted us and how we need the unique gifts of others. This is so utterly vital that we simultaneously understand, a lot of people stop at the first one. Look, look what I can do. Look what God's given me to do. Look at, look at me, 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 me. And they think that they don't need other brothers and sisters in Christ. This is about simultaneously knowing how Jesus has uniquely gifted you and realizing that you need the unique gifts of others. <clears throat> now, while I can complain to John Calvin about his bad views on music, he is spot on right here. Calvin wrote, no member of Christ's body is endowed with such perfection as to be able, without the assistance of others, to supply his own necessities. That's what Calvin's saying, what we're talking about here. <clears throat> then Paul gets to the next list of five. Look in verse 11. This is the next list of five, list of seven, second list of five. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and <clears throat> teachers. And this list isn't even close to exhaustive. If you're looking at the list going, hey, wait a second, I don't feel like I'm any of those. That's okay, this list is not exhaustive. <clears throat> Go to Romans 12. Paul has another huge list of spiritual gifts in Romans 12 and also 1 Corinthians 12. 
But these gifts right here in Ephesians 4, these are often seen as leadership gifts, and I happen to think that's because of some of the the struggles in leadership and stuff with the founding of the Ephesian church, if you go look at um, Acts 19. And then, actually, a guy named Ignatius wrote a letter to the church of Ephesus about 150 years after this letter was written, and they were still kind of struggling with some of the same things. So I think these are leadership-y kind of gifts. But the point is still clear. The different gifts are for the sake of unity and the different gifts need each other. So let's just say we take all the exhaustive spiritual gifts list in the New Testament and you can still sit back and step back and go, okay, Jim, but I still don't know how I'm supposed to discover how God gifted me. Like, I still don't know that. Well, I think that's the right question to ask and I think it takes time and and there are spiritual gifts tests, and you can think about it in a lot of different ways, but I'm just gonna give you two practical ways to discover how God has gifted you. <clears throat> Number one, patiently, emphasis on patiently, patiently <clears throat> give yourself to community with other believers, and your gifts will start to rise to the surface. They will, patiently. This does not mean, I tried community group three times, and it was dumb. That's not what I'm talking about, dude. Settle down. Left one's the break, okay? That's not what we're saying, Patiently give yourself to community with other believers and your gifts will rise to the surface. And secondly, try to serve in different ways. Try to volunteer over here. Try to serve in our student ministry, our kids' ministry. Try different things and notice how people respond to you with words after you serve. Notice when people are encouraged by your presence in your service. And then that will be a direct commentary on how the Spirit has and is gifting you. It is not a light switch. It's not like that. It takes time. But the key in all this is in the church, people need your gifting, so you better figure it out. And you need the spiritual gifts of others, so you better get around people who are trying to figure it out. Now, while we're here, because these are leadership gifts, uh, just a side note about your pastors and your staff, um, since these things are are seen in that way, in in leadership kind of way. Um, You will succeed in this area to the extent that this kind of unity is modeled for you in our leadership. Meaning if if we don't lead well and we don't submit well to one another and we don't respect each other, then then you won't. If we end up like... like power, just power plays. If we end up doing like money hungry and, and power hungry, if we do, do that, like remember when St. Francis saw all that, I mean, you guys are gonna go run naked into the town square. Like that's what you're gonna do, right? <clears throat> if your leaders can't even get together and be unified <clears throat> with their distinct gifts. But the good news is, the good thing is, we don't, we don't roll like that. That's not, that's not how we are towards each other and we know that we need each other. I'm telling you right now, if this church did not have the care and the empathy of Trenton Stokes, if it did not have the joy and the passion of Mike Hawkins, if it didn't have the creativity of Matt Rexford or the honesty of Johnny Brush or the kindness of Tanya Warner or the faithfulness of Rick Aylstock, if it didn't have the warmth and the service of Alex Gardner and dozens more, I could be here all day. If it didn't have all these things and more, if it didn't have these different gifts, if we didn't know that we needed each other, we would be in a world of trouble and you should go to another church right now. A couple weeks ago, <laughs> somebody asked me about my strengths finders results. It's like there's, there's 34 strengths on the list. And for me, uh, futuristic is a strength. For me, on a list of 34, futuristic is 33. So I'm like, I don't care about the future. Like, I just don't, just don't think about it. <clears throat> what about vision? <clears throat> All right, what's for lunch? Like, I don't, <clears throat> it just doesn't register for me. Now, here's the deal. That proves that I need people like Charlie Boyd and Jason Malone who have foresight that can go, come on, Jim, let's go, let's go this way. I, I, I need that. 
and please, please, please get this. Just as much, not more than, not less than, just as much as you need to see us model these things well as we lead you, we need the gifts of every single person in this church family so that we might all further enjoy Jesus and live in his love and listen to the spirit and be thankful for grace and invite people into life with God. These things are gonna happen most naturally when we simultaneously understand how Jesus has gifted us and how we need the unique gifts of other people around us. We have to, have to, have to have that. This is an indispensable part of the picture that Paul is painting for us of Christ's body in Ephesians 4. We have to have that. And then Paul lists several reasons, but look why he says we should do all this. Look at verse 14. We should do, look, we should do unity through diverse gifts. Here it is, verse 14. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So this is why our initial question also was about protecting against false unity because there will always be be a counterfeit to God's gift of unity, something that the enemy tries to use that's fake unity, that's false unity. Spurgeon wrote, Satan hates Christian fellowship. Take that devil, just go back to hell, right? Satan hates Christian fellowship. It's always his policy to keep Christians apart. And anything which can divide the saints from one another, he delights in. And if you scour church history with me, this is exactly why so much attempted unity in the past was false unity, because it was usually unity in the name of people getting more power and more authority. And today, so many Christians use perfect and flawless agreement around a socio-political issue to be the litmus test for Christian oneness. And that's not what Paul is talking about. When, when he warns against being carried away and deceived by every wind of doctrine, here's what he's thinking. He has in mind people who are trying to make something besides Jesus the central point of Christian unity. Right, like, like, like I think Arius was wrong and that St. Nick, should have told him he was wrong. I don't think he should have punched him. I just don't think that's worked. That that wasn't the the Jesus of scripture. And then if you keep pushing, you have to think it's not gonna work. Togetherness and unity around anything else besides Jesus is not gonna work. It's Jesus' church. I will build my church. It's Christ's body. To build our unity around anything else is a sure failure. And here's what that means. We guard ourselves from false unity by viewing every other belief as it relates to our ultimate belief in the gospel of Jesus. What what I'm saying is that Jesus is not an item on a long list of beliefs. He alone is our creed. We guard ourselves from false unity by viewing every other belief as it relates to our ultimate belief in the gospel of Jesus. Now, I'm getting ready to say something that you might disagree with. And if you do, cool. And if you do, don't immediately email me at 1.45 p.m. right when the last bite of lunch is swallowed. Don't do that. Think about it and pray about it for a while. Here it is. If you're a follower of Jesus and you believe something, anything, it can be a social thing, it can be a political thing, it can even be a theological thing, and you have not considered how that belief relates to the gospel of Jesus crucified and resurrected for sinners, then you either should not believe it or you should hold it so loosely that you are not offended when somebody disagrees with it. 
We good? I mean, this is what I, this is what I want to do with my life. <clears throat> and, and I know I fail at it. I'm preaching it myself here. Jesus is the center of all of church history. He's the center of all of human history. He should be the center of your life. He better, God, please be the center of this church. And the moment that I try to sit something beside Jesus on his rightful throne is the moment that I open myself up to being tossed to and fro by deceptive ways. And the moment that I do that, I likewise open myself up to be angry at and judgmental towards other believers who don't want that thing sitting beside Jesus on his throne. Yo, Jim, that hits a little hard. What do we need to do about that? Thanks for asking. Verse 15, look. Speaking the truth in love. That's how it's always translated. It's not a bad translation. It's a weird Greek word. It's just the verb for truth. Truthing in love. That's what it actually says. Now, here you go. This is not primarily, I just need to, in a really loving way, tell you a really hard thing. That's not what this verse means. Is that in the Bible? Yeah, other places. That's not what this verse means. This verse is truthing one another with the good news of Jesus. We grow up into unity. Verse 16, so that every part works properly and people can see the body of Jesus alive in the world today. So yes, we need to be aware of false teaching. When John writes the book of Revelation, he writes a letter to the church at Ephesus and he writes about false teaching there too. Yes, we should be hesitant about a culturally contingent Jesus that somehow just miraculously agrees with us on everything all the time. Absolutely. But The way that we do that is by a long obedience in the same direction. The way that we do that is by slowly and communally learning to see everything in the light of Jesus, who he is and what he came to do. That is truthing in love. And that's how we guard ourselves from from false unity. We, We look at every other belief in light of our ultimate belief in the gospel of Jesus. Now, some of you are like, okay, okay, okay. Like how? How do I I pounce on this? How do I do this? What is this practically? Well, we just did five, seven, five. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to the first list of five. This is how to do the Jesus-centered unity. If you want to feel it and you want to pursue it more. Remember, this is the big practical turn in Ephesians. And I don't know if you need to like write these on a note card or I set alarms on my phone sometimes to, to remind me to pray for people or remind me to do things. <clears throat> but maybe you could just write something on, your, on a card or put it on your phone and just do this. You ready? Verse two, verse two. <clears throat> did I engage people with humility today? Or did you try to make it about yourself, thus rendering experiential unity out of reach? Did I care for my wife and my kids? Did I care for other people? Did I care for my coworkers with gentleness today, meekness, compassion, or was there a really unnecessary edge in how you said everything today? And here's the biggest, fattest slice of humble pie. This is the third one in verse two. You want, you want Christ-saturated unity? You want to experience it? Ask yourself this and be honest. When you put your head on the pillow at night, just go, was I patient today? Let me know how that goes. Do a little inventory of everything since you woke up and go, was I patient today? Get back to me. See how that goes. You're gonna see how dependent you are on the gifts of others and the presence of the Spirit. Or the the last one in verse two, do I bear with other believers in love? Could could you be described as having an enduring love towards other brothers and sisters? Or when he gets turned up and pressure's on, you just kind of slowly bow out? Or do you have an enduring love? That's how Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 13. <clears throat> or verse three, the one that we looked at. Are you eager to maintain unity? 
eager. Like, do you actually want it? If you don't, you should. And I wonder why you don't want it. Maybe it's because you don't realize that you need it. Once you see that you need it, you will want it. Are you eager, are you diligent, other translations say, to maintain the unity that we have been given, the unity that the Spirit makes happen? And we should want it, we should desire it, because this is not about warm fuzzies for followers of Jesus. That may be a byproduct, sure, but this is about putting the glorious mercy and truth of Jesus on display. That's what this is about. And so you need to find ways to let this first list of five be a mirror to your heart. But climactically, Here's why this list of five is what our posture of unity should be towards others. Here's why. Because this was exactly Jesus' posture of unity towards us when he gave us unifying grace and welcomed us into his family. There is no, first, there is no greater humility than stepping from heaven to earth to enter the brokenness and angst of a world that he had once made good. Next, there is no gentleness and sweetness and compassion and empathy like Jesus. He himself said, I am gentle and lowly of heart. Come to me, all you who are weary and weighed down, and I will give you rest. And think about the immeasurable patience that Jesus had with people. Time and time again, his disciples didn't get it. I don't get it. You don't get it. But for the good of their unity and for ours, he is infinitely patient with us. Tolerance is a supposed cultural virtue that yields fake unity, but it is a parody of the gospel virtue, patience, that is perfected in Jesus. And his patience and his long suffering towards us is unmatched and led him all the way to the cross. You want to talk about bearing with one another in love? On the cross, he bore the full weight of all of our sin. He took the full scope of the judgment that we deserve, and he did it all because of his great love for us. And Jesus knew that his sacrificial death for us would purchase a unity that could not be broken. He wanted a unified people for himself, and he is eager. He wants to maintain the unity that he has given us, and he invites us to trust him for that, to trust him for real life. If you're tired or you're angry or you're confused or you're hurt or you're abused and the church has done some of that or if you think that you've sinned so much that you have outmatched his grace and his love or if you think practical unity is just a pipe dream and it's not really possible, he invites you. He invites you step towards him in faith. Look to him in hope. Jesus gave up his own body unto death, and his own body was raised, proving that hope isn't fiction and that living in unity is not wishful thinking. And now he looks at us, his church, he looks at us, us Fellowship Greenville, and he says, you are my body, you are my life and my love to the world around you. And do not forget, the church of Jesus Christ is not going anywhere. And God's revealed plan for us is that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter and unifier of our faith, and that we would share an experiential oneness, harmony, togetherness, and unity that can't be found anywhere else but Christ. That's what he wants for us. That's his plan revealed for us. And this is what Paul means when he says, I urge you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. He means walk in step with the gospel, walk in true, eternal, life-giving unity that can only be found in Jesus. Fellowship Greenville, this is really, really, really good news for us today, that the divisions and separations between us and God and between one another don't win. Those separations and divisions don't win because Jesus has bridged the gap. 
And now we get to trust him and live in the harmony and the oneness that he provides. And today, I hope you want that and I hope you believe that's really good news. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would bind us together in Jesus' name. That we would have that that bond of peace that Paul talks about. Shalom, harmony, oneness, where people see the belonging that we have and that we share and that won't be broken, that people see it and they realize their great need, Jesus, for you as their savior. So Holy Spirit, right now, even make that bond that we share even tighter. And Holy Spirit, right now, just as we're thinking about these things, would would you purge and get rid of pride and get rid of presumption in our midst that are hurdles and barriers to unity? Would you do that, Holy Spirit? And stir inside of us Christ-like humility and gentleness and patience and love. Please do that, Holy Spirit. Jesus, so that you would be seen as worthy and glorious and good and rescuer and savior and king and Lord, rightly on your throne, reigning and ruling. Spirit, do this work in us so that Jesus will be seen as awesome. Please do that, Holy Spirit. Jesus, we love you. You're the best. Amen.